a metropolitan area should have some means to support its food needs. And I will say food and fiber needs within a hundred mile radius. The notion that we can keep relying on food to be produced, you know, thousands of miles away, it's not realistic, it's not sustainable. Adding to our ability to produce food within the urban and suburban footprint will be increasingly important in the years ahead. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Mom. Have you had a chance to go see the sunflower fields yet? Yes, early this morning. We went to one of the fields where you had to walk in a little bit. It was really beautiful back in there. And the sunflowers are so sweet the way they turn towards the sun. Did you see any other people? No, we had it to ourselves at that hour. It was just after 7 a.m., but I'm sure it'll be more active later on because the flowers seem to be at their peak right now. Yeah, it can be so crazy out there because people love going and taking photos and whatever else they're painting and everything else. Remember when nobody knew about them? Yeah, including me when we first moved here. And somebody just happened to mention it, and I was blown away when I got to see them. For you listeners, what we're talking about is the McKee Beshers Wildlife Management Area. It's an almost 2,000-acre tract of land that shares a common boundary with the CNO Canal and an area of the Seneca Creek State Park. And every year, they plant a number of acres in sunflower fields to provide a food source for a lot of different kinds of wildlife. Sunflowers and sunflower seeds are a favorite food source for a lot of different birds, songbirds, doves, mammals, pollinators, and they require pollination by insects, usually bees, to produce a seed crop. And then in turn, the honeybees and many of the species of native bees benefit from the abundant nectar and pollen that sunflowers produce. So it's just a really wonderful, holistic way of managing the land. Yeah, and the sunflower fields are just one of the many treasures of the Montgomery County Agricultural Reserve, which is where you guys, my parents, live on their small farm and the headquarters for Lady Farmer. This agricultural reserve is a designated land use zone in Montgomery County, Maryland, just west of Washington, D.C. It's around 93,000 acres, and they were set aside in 1980 by the county council to preserve farmland and rural space in the northwestern part of the county. The Farmland Protection Program has been characterized as the most famous, most studied, and most emulated program of its kind in the whole country. 
Yes, and despite the special nature of this unique place, we find that not many people, even here in the metropolitan area, even know that it's here. In one sense, like the sunflowers themselves, it's like a well-kept secret. But on the other hand, especially in these times when land use is an increasing issue of concern, we want to share what we've got here, both as an example of what can be accomplished and as a way of protecting it, which is why we invited our guest today, Caroline Taylor, to talk to us about it. Caroline is the executive director of the Montgomery Countryside Alliance, a nonprofit group working to promote sound economic land use and transportation policies that preserve the natural environment, open spaces, and rural lands in the agricultural reserve. As you might imagine, yes, protecting this national treasure is quite literally a full-time job. You will hear Caroline tell us about her background and how she got to the ag reserve in our chat with her. And we think that whether or not you live here in the Mid-Atlantic, this conversation will give you some insight into the complexity of the issues around land use and preservation. And so now we'll turn it over to Caroline. So Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation because it pertains to where we live. And many times on this podcast, I have mentioned that we live in the Montgomery County Ag Reserve and sort of explained what it is. But I'm happy that you're here to really explain it in depth and to put it into perspective for all of our listeners and why it's relevant to everybody, not just us that live here. So anyway, why don't you tell us something of your story and your background and how you got to where you are today in this role? Sure. Well, first of all, my pleasure being here to chat with both of you, two of my favorite folks. I was one of the few sort of native Washingtonians born in D.C., lived there when I was tiny and then moved to the Montgomery County suburbs in Bethesda, the little split level there. And from very early on, my preference was to be outside, however possible. And even when I was inside, I had even the wintertime, I had the windows wide open because I'd rather be outside. So I, I did all my exploring in and around Bethesda, underneath the beltway, through tunnels to Rock Creek Park, and continued a lot of my outdoors when I went to University of Virginia in Charlottesville, which was a beautiful area. And then, you know, skipping forward, had for a period of time a landscape business also uh, worked uh, in environmental litigation, quite different, obviously, than landscaping with National Wildlife Federation, and found myself being drawn to the areas outside of the suburban spots in Montgomery County. So we ended up finding my, at the time, boyfriend and I found several acres outside of Poolsville, Maryland, which is north of Potomac and not far from the Potomac River. And uh, it's a sweet little several acres and little rambler and set up home here and have been ever since here planting trees and growing things and falling in love with a, you know, a really interesting area. I mean, the agricultural reserve is about a hundred thousand acres. It's diverse in its topography and its vegetation and its people and the types of farming and activities that go on out here. But when I moved out here, I, as I said, I fell in love with the place because of what I felt to be its stark contrast to the sort of 
mechanized and built up world that I grew up around in suburbia, it gave you room to breathe and to think and to connect. And so all of that was very joyful. But fairly early on, I realized it wasn't a set and forget preservation program. It may have had zoning that was set in place, you know, that maximized one home per 25 acres. But there were challenges to its preservation, including something called annexation, which meant that the little municipalities that were within the agricultural reserve, such as Poolsville, could actually carve out areas, take into their own municipal boundaries and rezone for fairly intense suburban style development. Do I understand that when you first came out here to Montgomery County, the rural area of Montgomery County, the Ag Reserve had already been established? And to that point, can you explain to our listeners exactly what is the Ag Reserve? And you've told us a little bit about it, but if you just kind of sum it up for people and its history. So where can you find 100,000 acres of land protected for food and fiber production, and outdoor recreation this close to a huge metropolitan area? Well, the answer is not very many places, but the very first of these programs was indeed Montgomery County's Agricultural and Open Space Reserve. It is uh, the gem of uh, Montgomery County and indeed the gem of the Washington metropolitan area. It is protected, as I said, for food and fiber production, but also for protection of of the natural world, forest protection and and green space protection so that we can have the biodiversity that, uh, that is needed here. So it protects our water quality. It provides for clean air shed, keeps public costs down. If we were to develop and require all the public services for this area, we would be in a heap of trouble. One of the things I tell people, although this statistic is a couple of years old, for every tax dollar collected in the developed parts of the county, it's like $1.25 in costs to provide you know, all the services needed. For every dollar collected in the agricultural reserve, it's about 94 cents in terms of public service costs, that adds up. So it's economically a savings for the county as well. But it provides environmental services, economic services, and food resilience services. So in 2021, we are the 41st year of the creation of the Agricultural Reserve in 1980. While it was inked, while the master plan for agricultural and open space preservation was inked and signed off on in 1980, it was years in the making. You know, through the 1970s, there was a growing concern that Montgomery County's suburbanization was going to gobble up all of the producing lands that remained and the uh, intact forests and important green spaces. And among other reasons why that concerned folks then was the public cost that would be associated with serving that whole area. So a number of bright minds, uh, including uh, Dr. Royce Hansen, who was at the time a planning chair, tried to figure out the best way to stave off 
uh, the loss of that land. They started out by down zoning. They went from you know half acre uh, zoning to five acre zoning, thinking, okay, that's really going to do the trick. Well, it didn't do the trick. There were still uh, subdevelopments marching across the landscape. So Dr. Hansen thought about it and he thought, well, we're not going to be able to do this with a stick approach. People are going to yell about their private property rights. So they tried to figure out a process whereby there would be a value associated with the development potential of a home per five acres. And they established a program called the transfer of development rights. So each parcel that had a certain number of acres, whether it was 100 acres or 50 acres, they had a certain number of development rights associated with that. And they could sell those development rights to what were called receiving areas in the developing more urban or suburban parts of the county. Those developers would be able to add to their development intensity by purchasing those development rights. And that money would offset uh, the farmers' you know, perceived equity in terms of their development potential that they had when it was zoned at, you know, at five houses per acre as opposed to one house per 25 acres. The bottom line was set up, this was set up to compensate the landowners in the reserve at the creation of the reserve in 1980 so they could have you know, something fair to offset their giving up their development potential. And the good news was at the time that the reserve was created, commodity prices were up. So most of the farmers and there was a lot of commodity farming going on, soy, wheat, corn. Most of them were pretty happy to keep farming at that time. They weren't looking to cash out. So this worked. And while there were farmers and landowners who were not still not happy, even with transfer of development rights, they prevailed. It was signed off. And it has become a national model for farmland preservation. It is in the textbooks. It has been you know, awarded and emulated across the country. And now we have 547 working farms. We have about 350 horticultural enterprises within the 100,000 acre reserve. And we have, I believe, somewhere around 10,000 folks employed in either the horticultural or agricultural endeavors. Oh, and I should add within the 100,000 acres, there's about 30,000 acres of county, state, and federal parkland. So there's real opportunities for the residents of the county. And Montgomery County now has about a million residents. So a place for people to get out and connect with nature is very important. So those parks have become increasingly important. And during the pandemic, I don't know if you all noticed this too, but people just were clamoring to get to, you know, Seneca Creek, the Seneca Greenway Trail, you know, to McKee Besher's Wildlife Management Area, to Sugarloaf Mountain. It was clear that people needed to connect and be somewhere reasonably close to be outdoors. You just explained it so well and so in depth. You actually just said a lot of things that I was never totally clear on. But I'm also wondering if you could speak a little bit more, maybe in like layman's terms to someone who lives in a Washington, D.C. or maybe any city where they're thinking about these kinds of things about where they can go for recreation, where they can source their food. And can you talk a little bit about what the reality is of having this kind of 
designated zoning over a large land space, both the positive and the negative, because I think a lot of it's a lot more complicated than people think, as you said, but what are kind of the basic, like maybe a quick little pro and con list? What is setting aside a third of the land mass in Montgomery County uh, do for you? If you're not living in there and you're not farming there, what, what does that matter to you? Well, there's several things that it matters. Let's start with what I consider to be a very obvious one. If one were to look at, if the listeners were to look at a stream quality map of Montgomery County and the amount of pollutants in the different streams that end up in the Potomac River, which is the source of drinking water for you know 4.5 million residents in the Washington, D.C. area, you would see the color coding on this, by the way, is red, not very good, green, high quality. Well, it, all of the streams that are flowing from the areas with impervious surfaces and various uses and development are flowing either you know yellow, orange, red. In the flowing from the reserve, they're green. It is a real tool to keeping water quality high. And that should matter to people increasingly as we hear more about the effects of climate change. Water quality is and quantity is certainly high up on the list. So having this area to filter and cleanse the waters that are received by the Potomac River is crucial. Someone just sent me a link yesterday to water testing that's taking place in Northern Virginia. And they have a high degree of there's some surface contaminants, some persistent, you know, forever chemicals that are showing up in the water testing there in Northern Virginia. I don't know whether that's special unto Northern Virginia or that's more widespread, but we have to pay attention to how land use relates to the resources that sustain us. So there's one. The other is that, and this really became acute during the pandemic, and this is another obvious, is a metropolitan area should have some means to support its food needs, and I will say food and fiber needs, within a hundred mile radius. The notion that we can keep relying on food to be produced, you know, thousands of miles away, it's not realistic, it's not sustainable. So having our capabilities through an agricultural reserve, but also importantly and increasingly in adding to our ability to produce food within the urban and suburban footprint will be increasingly important in the years ahead. There is no question that the, the areas that produce our food in this country that typically have the bread basket and out west uh, California in the uh, Gulf states are going to be already are and will be increasingly challenged to meet our needs. So keeping a capability and expanding a capability to produce food and fiber here is important. Whether you live in Montgomery County, whether you live in PG County, whether you live in DC. And then there's the other, which is becomes more intangible to people, but as we said earlier, has become more manifest during the pandemic. Human beings cannot live a healthy life hermetically sealed away from the natural environment. And that is becoming increasingly evident with the number of diseases that we are suffering as a species. If we continue to 
make those opportunities for outdoor connection further and further away, we will suffer. Our mental health will suffer. Our physical health will suffer. So having these close-in opportunities to commune with, to connect with, to bond with nature is invaluable. It is the thing that will sustain us. Well, that sounds great. I was wondering, what are the challenges? Why is it controversial? So anytime you have a preservation program, there's going to be competing interests for what you're preserving. In this case, it's land. And because it's so close, the reserve is so close to the developed and developing parts of this Washington metropolitan area, highly desirable, both for commercial use and residential use. There are people who will say, wait a second, you've got 100,000 acres out there. Surely you don't need all that for farming. Surely, you know, you have enough parkland. Can't we just carve off 10,000 acres for, you know, the important public purpose of, you know, senior housing or affordable housing? And, you know, that shouldn't be a problem. And as channeling, you know, Dr. Royce Hansen, the creator of the reserve, it's a death of a thousand cuts. Once you decide there's some neat public purpose, you know, to carve off and change the zoning in the reserve, you've really opened the door to the whole thing just tumbling in. So, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, most recently, the laudable cause of renewable energy, the industry really wanted to have access to the affordable acreage in the reserve to put in, you know, commercial scale solar. So during the pandemic, shelves were empty in local stores. What was bustling and what we were finding was that the local farms, the folks that were producing the table crops, dairy products, poultry and meat, they were being overrun by people trying to find out, can we get our food right here? And in fact, some of them were having to put up signs because folks were showing up without notice, you know, like I need a chicken, I'll take that one over there. So it became very clear that having the capability to feed ourselves nearby with farms that are producing with practices that we really want to know. I mean, I think more people now would like to know how their food is produced. It became a crucial bit of our survival. And moreover, this wasn't just, you know, farm to paying consumer. These were farms that were also donating thousands of pounds of produce, of protein to our local food banks for the increasing number of our neighbors that were in need. It was another uplift during a very dark period of time for us here, but it underscored the need not only to protect the farms that we already have, but to really expand upon the opportunities to produce the food that ends up on our tables. Caroline, I have heard the statistic that 95% of the food for the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia metropolitan area comes from the West Coast. Is that true or close to true? Yeah, I think I can't speak to that specific statistic. I think you could probably use that statistic and say from Florida, from the West Coast, from outside of the U.S., believe it or not, a lot of our food comes from, you know, China, 
which is a shock to me, you know, that I would buy, you know, tilapia and it took a trip all the way from China, from Mexico. And I'm not going to say that there's anything wrong necessarily with being able to have uh, products such as avocados and things like that, that are well-grown, that are brought to a, a metropolitan area. I will say the idea that we think that that is sustainable over the long run is really risky thinking. And as I just said, it during the pandemic, the riskiness of it became quite apparent uh, when our shelves were emptied, when the chicken and the beef and everything was just like, you know, people were fighting over the last package of it. Yeah. It's another part of this too, Mary and Emma, and that is, as you well know, as people, we have moved so far away from understanding how to do for ourselves, if we can, if we have the capability to find some earth where we live or a community garden or pots or whatever, but understanding that growing some of what we consume ourselves is super useful and important. And that also became apparent during the pandemic when, you know, seed suppliers were out. I mean, people were buying up everything they could get their hands on to grow for themselves. And, you know, while that was a situation of urgency, my hope is it carries over for people to understand that, you know, families and children understanding how things grow, how you nurture them and how you treat them with some degree of reverence when you consume them as if, you know, that these are not just things that magically appear before you, but there's effort and labor that goes into growing them. I think that that's a really important component of our part of the food system. Yeah. And I think that that's been a, a gift, as you said earlier, a gift of the pandemic is to open people's eyes a little bit and to circle back with what I was saying earlier and statistics aside, I think it's safe to say, and you can agree with me or not, that a disproportional percentage of our food in this large metropolitan area comes from hundreds or thousands of miles away. Right. In the event of a supply chain disruption such as what we experienced a year ago, I would argue that that puts our area, our location in the category of sort of an expanded food desert. Because if the supply chains were really cut off, we would be in big trouble in the metropolitan area. We got in a little bit of trouble last year, but mm-hmm. larger disruptions could happen at any time. No question. No question. So, so that means there's work ahead to advantage with the agricultural reserve, we have opportunity that hasn't been fully explored. There are, you know, acres that could be in sustainable food production here, but have not. And there are a number of reasons why they have not. But, you know, among them is that training, mentoring, providing resources for next generation producers here has not been forthcoming from local government, you know, to be fair. Uh, those, you know, asking for resources that may or may not be there, but prioritization of resources, it seems to me, should be part of this. And I think having a healthy local food system should be right up there. And I would like to see more done in the way of grooming the next generation. We need an incubator here, a farm incubator. And that has been a discussion that has been a lot of words and not a lot of action for a number of years. Well, to me, that was what the glaring issue was in this recent 
discussion and decision about setting up solar farms here in the Ag Reserve, and I'm going to let you explain all that. But it seemed like people weren't really framing the situation in a way that made sense. Like we have all this farmland out here, but they wanted to turn into solar panels so we could reduce climate change, not taking into account that put solar panels a lot of places, but why would you want to suck up very, very limited land, farmland across the country for something that could be put somewhere else? Is that oversimplification? And I'm going to let you explain that whole solar thing. No, I mean, it's not oversimplification. Look, you know, whether it's green or not, uh, the solar industry is an industry. It's a business. And the bottom line is a lot of their focus. This is, this isn't, they aren't a nonprofit. That, you know, so when they're looking to where to deploy their facilities, they're looking for the cheapest place to deploy them. Well, voila, uh, Montgomery County was about ready to deliver them the agricultural reserve. It took quite a bit of work. It took quite a bit of mobilization of citizen activists during a time when they were thinking about other things. Who had time to write in, you know, letters asking for, you know, more thoughtful contemplation of this? And yet they did. Over a thousand people wrote in, which is a large number. A coalition was built of climate change activists, preservationists, environmentalists. Over 62 separate groups said to the county council, hold on, you're about ready to squander a place that offers us many services separate from and perhaps in addition to solar energy generation, but you're making a big mistake. We worked with commodity farmers, which we don't, our group doesn't generally uh, work shoulder to shoulder with them, but we all found a common goal. And that was the preservation of a remarkable place. And in the end, the council of the nine members voted seven to two to accept our amendments to allow for a careful pathway forward. But it was an, you know, a difficult but uplifting process where people a wide group of people, both in the county and the Washington region, the state of Maryland, understood the importance of the reserve and the potential harm that could occur if we acted only upon the urgency of climate change without forethought and without appropriate science-based, public policy-based planning. And so we considered this to be a win all the way around. Solar can be deployed in the reserve now. It'll require some care and siding, but it will help to protect the farmland at the same time. So tell us a little bit more about the organization that you currently are the serving executive director and its history and its role in preserving this land and why you do know so much about this solar issue and most other issues that concern the Ag Reserve. So Montgomery Countryside Alliance is a, a small, scrappy nonprofit that started in 2001 when Virginia was poised and Maryland was receptive to the idea of a massive outer beltway bridge that would have bisected the reserve and opened it up to large-scale land use changes. The organization mobilized under the name Solutions Not Sprawl. They worked with partners across the river, Piedmont Environmental Council and others, and battled back that massive project. 
they had to decide after that win whether they were going to, you know, have that as a one-off or they were going to keep the organization intact and staffed. And so they decided to do the latter. And so it, for a number of years, was in place. I was asked if I would like to take on the executive directorship in 2009. And I told them that I would. I did have one requirement, and that was that I wanted us to continue our defensive work, but I also wanted us to, to shift our focus to promoting farming, agriculture, helping to sort of groom uh, next generation uh, farmers. So they were agreeable with that. And so, in fact, my coworker, Christina Bostic, and I both started in 2009. Almost immediately, even after requesting that we do proactive work for farming, we got hit with a, a massive mega church proposal that would have been, oh, I don't know what it was, 138,000 square feet right above Little Bennett Creek and would have been a massive change in land use and had some pretty deleterious effects. So we ended up having to work on that <laughs> for a while. No problem with churches in and around the reserve. This was a, a much bigger project with a lot bigger effect. So that was our baptism into uh, working with Montgomery Countryside Alliance. But yeah, we've worked over the years establishing, uh, we have a land link program. I don't know whether you all can put some links in for folks, but we, there was a great program yes. about some land link farmers from Dodo Farms recently. They can learn more about, you know, who we're connecting with affordable farmland out here. We also have a relief, the reserve program where we're planting trees in stream corridors to help protect stream quality. And so that's in partnership with the Montgomery County Planning Department. So we are planting, you know, 100 to 200 trees an acre, trying to really green up those areas. And they're all native plants. And that program is headed up by the remarkable Carol Bergman, who knows about all things growing and started the Weed Warrior Program in the county. So, yeah, so, you know, we try to keep as on top of the various issues as possible. But as you can imagine, there are going to be things that, you know, there's hardly a week that doesn't go by that somebody doesn't call me and say, are you aware of, you know, this piece of legislation or this proposal or whatever? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about that. So then we learn as quickly as we can and then decide whether we can weigh in. And the organization does not confine itself strictly to the boundaries of the reserve. When we hear from colleagues that are challenged with forest removal or some water quality issues, for example, 10 Mile Creek, we lend a hand when we can because it's that kind of coalition and that kind of collaboration that are going to get the best result. We can't be parochial in the way we look at the environment. It just, it just doesn't work. So we are, we've been very fortunate to set up very strong relationships with other small nonprofits, stream protection groups, uh, and you know, Audubon naturalists and others throughout the county and work together to try to protect the environment as best we can. What do you think have been some of the greatest challenges over the years in protecting the Ag Reserve and what have been some of your greatest wins? So the challenge to the reserve you know, I think the first challenge that we identified, Christina, my coworker, and I identified was the lack of affordability of farmland, especially for new and expanding farmers. We could have a, 
an agricultural reserve and it could be in textbooks, but if we don't have people who can afford to farm here, well, then that's game over. So it was that reality that was, you know, we asked farmers, we did a survey, you know, what are your challenges? And across the boards, it was, you know, can't find anything affordable to farm. And certainly finding places affordable to farm and live uh, remains a big uh, challenge here. You know, secondly, public perception, which feeds into governmental actions, if the public views the agricultural reserve as a place that doesn't do anything for them, other than create greater density where they live in, you know, Silver Spring or Wheaton or Bethesda, then they're not going to have affection for the place. You know, and, and it was great Wendell Berry who pointed out that in order to protect something, you really have to have affection for it. You need to love it. And so it was a challenge to have a greater understanding for the county residents, from the regional residents, of why should you have affection for this place? Because there is an effect by setting aside a third of, of the county that really is not available for intense development. That development is going somewhere and likely in people's neighborhoods where they're having to deal with crowded roads, crowded schools, less green space. So having them understand you know, what's in it for them, but also being with them to defend those green spaces. I mean, that's a, that's one of the things we realized is that we can't say, gosh, it really sucks to be you and you're going to lose that force. We said, no, we'll come in and we'll testify and we'll make sure that your livability, your green space is protected there too. Very hard and not necessarily successful. But, but some of the bigger successes that we've had over the years, I would say one of our big fights was protecting the very high quality 10 mile creek whose terminus is Seneca Lake, which is a reservoir, which is the backup drinking water supply for about 4.5 million Washington metropolitan area residents. And the county was poised to approve a ridiculous amount of development, two shopping areas, two outlet malls, thousands of homes, all on the headwaters of this creek that hosts, among other things, brown trout and a variety of macro and micro invertebrates that, you know, it's just teeming with life. And, and if we're going to be only looking out for ourselves, it ends up being potentially drinking water for us. So being able to ratchet back with science-based input, the amount of imperviousness of hard surface roof or pavement in that last stage of Clarksburg, Maryland's development was a huge several year struggle, but we managed to do it. And for anyone who's driven through Clarksburg, you can see the areas where there wasn't successful preservation efforts. And it's really a stunning amount of sprawl development. Other yeah. six were battling back multiple attempts to locate the outer beltway here, which would not have alleviated uh, traffic. It would have been uh, inducing more traffic and opening up areas on both the Virginia side and the Maryland side to uh, sprawl development. And then, I mean, I'm sort of just culling out, I'd say launching the Landlink program, we believe is a success. We've matched over 500 acres of farmland with small-scale producers who have not only growing for their own businesses, but they're giving back to the community. They're mentoring, they're donating to Mana Food and other food kitchens here locally. 
And then, of course, the solar struggle to make sure that we don't take a sense of urgency related to climate change and apply linear thinking to something that is really a systems approach to how we deal with climate change mitigation and adaptation. So being able to build a strong coalition to defend against that zoning change, I consider to be a really big success. And I've been really grateful for the partnership and collaboration with a number of very bright, very selfless activists. Yes, I agree. And what you just said about trying to help people not fall into just linear thinking about it, like, oh, climate change, oh, solar, yeah, let's do that. Sounds so good. And really not understand, as you say, the holistic systems that go into helping climate change, including regenerative agriculture and sustainable agriculture techniques Mm -hmm. that I think people are just now beginning to come aware of and interested in, in terms of their own food and just now beginning to realize how that does relate to climate change. And it is a way we can all address climate change just by even choosing what food we're going to buy or choosing to grow some of our own food or all of this. But one thing I wanted to say was, you know, I've I've lived here nine years now, and still I encounter very frequently, like even people in D.C., even people in the metropolitan area, are not aware of the Ag Reserve. You say, you know, I live out here in the Montgomery County Ag Reserve. Well, what's that? And my goodness gracious, you know, and as you told us earlier, it's a national model for Mm -hmm. land use planning. So where is the disconnect there? And what can be done about that? Well, I could argue that then I'll I'll have a job for a while. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think people are so consumed with their, you know, sort of the requirements of living today, you know, their job, their obligations that, you know, surviving at least over the last year or so that outside of that, you know, usual routine, they're not really able to look and see because we're hiding in plain sight here. We are written up We have a magazine now, I'm happy to say for anyone who's interested, Plenty Magazine, which is online, Plenty Ag Mag, available also in, you know, variety of Whole Foods and other stores. It's it's a great way to tell the story throughout the D.C. region of a place and to, importantly, to let people know how they can engage in the place. It'd be one thing to say, okay, we have an agricultural reserve, but you basically can just drive down the road and that's about all there is to it. But there are, especially when we are, the vaccines are more fully dispensed and this year moves on, the abilities to be at farm events and, and gathering together at the wineries and, and breweries out here will increase. I agree with you that I think awareness is spreading. And one example is the Miki Besher's sunflower field. Every July, there's this beautiful display of how many acres of sunflowers, Caroline? 15 acres? Yeah, there's lots. Like yeah. Many, many acres. Yeah. And when I, when I first moved here, like, you know, nobody knew anything about it. You know, you'd go out there. It's like a photographer's paradise, a painter's paradise, and there'd be a few people there. But I have noticed in, the, in recent years, it has become much more visited, which is, it's really a good thing. Mm-hmm. I go there and I say, gosh, you don't have to go to Italy. <laughs> it's right here, the sunflower. Right. <laughs> no, it's right here. It's right here. And 
I think one of the most joyful parts of my job, and this hopefully can resume because it's been on, you know, quiescent, but is when we're able to take, uh, we have small buses of people we'll take on a tour out here. And, you know, without exception, the folks come away at the end of the day, just feeling like you can see like the stress sort of disappear and they're inspired to come back to buy from the local farms to, you know, bicycle or to whatever. Caroline, what does the good dirt mean to you? And that can be literally or metaphorically or both. So, you know, good dirt is, and it is both a literal and a metaphorical translation. For me, the growing medium that we have that again, sustains us, that keeps us grounded and healthy is good dirt. You know, some people would prefer to call it good soil, but, you know, it's funny when I think about it in a literal way, I think about when I moved to the reserve and the the irony that the place that was protected for agriculture, you know, and growing has some of the worst dirt possible. I don't know how it is over at the, the Kingsley farm, but man, you know, heavy clay, rock, and just a challenge to get things to grow, you know, need to bring in compost and so forth. But at the end of the day, whether it's soggy, wet clay or whether it's rich humus, there's something good about being in the dirt. There's something so healing, at least for me. I mean, these early days of spring for me are just golden because I get to be in the dirt and it is the closest connection I can have with being alive. And so, yeah, that's what good dirt means to me. Indeed it is. It is the closest connection with life that we have is us in the soil. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So in closing, what would you like to leave our audience with about yourself and the work that you do? Just a message for everybody out there. If I were to sum up, you know, sort of my raison d'etre through my work and so forth, it's really about connection. And that is connecting people with the resources they need to, to grow, to farm, connecting people with the resources they need to protect the natural world, connecting people with you know, the governmental agencies that are ostensibly here to help us. And there are good people in local government that are really geared towards helping us protect our natural resources. And so that's a lot of of what I do in my job. But if I were to offer the, the folks that are listening to this, and that is step out of your usual routine and explore the place where you live. And that doesn't have to be making a road trip to the reserve, although we'd love you to do that. But if wherever you live, whatever stream services your neighborhood, whatever park or green space is find the time, make the time to connect with it, make the time to nurture it, if, even if it's a trash pickup or what have you. And of course, I'd have to say, because I'm bound to do so, you know, find a local farmer through a market or a a community supported agriculture and connect and try to buy whatever you can from local sources whenever you can. And finally, if you can have the capability to grow anything on your own and you have children too, do that. 
it's time, you know, get some seeds, get some plant starters and grow what you can, even, you know, a few things and you'll feel better for it. Thank you so much for being with us today and explaining all the great work you do and telling people about our beautiful Montgomery County Agricultural Reserve. We're so happy to have you as Executive Director of the Montgomery Countryside Alliance at you guys do such great work. And just thank you so much. And we really appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you for being so encouraging and inspiring. <laughs> thank you both for everything that you do, too. We love Lady Farmer. We love your ethos. And, um, you know, off we go. There are so many opportunities. And I'm looking forward to working with you. On, and everyone stay well. Thank you, Caroline, for shining such a light on our beautiful ag reserve here in Montgomery County and for helping all of us understand the challenges and nuances of preserving open space for now and for the future. Yes, and thank you so much, dear listeners, for tuning in to The Good Dirt. We're here every Friday. Welcome if it's your first time here. We are Lady Farmer, and you can find us online at ladyfarmer.com, on Instagram at weareladyfarmer, and we're here every Friday with new episodes from The Good Dirt Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. you like listening to the good dirt i hope you do because you're here listening to it and are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast well we're so excited to offer the almanac it's our private slow living community network where we share workshops activities articles essays recipes and so much more that align with our community's sustainable slow seasonal way of living as a member you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings Members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow-living enthusiasts, as well as Almanac-exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow-living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including... The Slow Living Retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay! That's ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac for three months free if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com community.